0: Well, happy Black History Month. It's been a minute, y'all. And since Where We're Headed is now a full year old, we're one years old, we thought why not pop back in and get things going for a second season. Hi, this is Alessandra, and you're listening to Where We're Headed this season i want to take where we're headed abroad i've been wanting to focus on community not just in but outside of the united states for a long time how is the story of dissent being told in other countries and other regions how does the narrative change how is it similar? We're all about to start finding out. In this interview with John Matirko of the Satanic Estate and the Luca Calia Festival. Today, a short bit on the demonization of African culture in the West Indies.
1: My mother was born in St. Thomas here, and my father is from St. Elizabeth. So I am from an African and a Maroon tribe. We we do the coming in helping people when they are sick, that's one. And we do the coming as a pleasure at Christmas time, August, and even at Easter time. call a kumina ceremony, to invoke the gods for a court case, for blessing in marriage, a number of things, in tomming and whatever. And again, there's a sacrifice, which are good sort of religious practices, you know. We have our sacrifices in Christianity as well. And of course, spirit possession. Sometimes when we pray kumina, we are tuning okay someone may be sick and they call for a kumina then you pray the kumina we pray kumina that at when sometimes when people die that we pray kumina the black and white kumina is when you have anybody dead and making a prayer for them okay you go to the black and white and candle.
0: that's
1: the time of killing god
2: I guess a little background is uh, a couple seasons ago on this show, I had uh, Dale McGowan on and we had this whole talk about uh, the devil and music as, you know, marginalized populations, how their cultures tend to be the ones that get demonized mm-hmm. and how that expresses itself in in their artwork, in, in context of like america we, we were talking about how that goes all the way back to robert johnson and the uh you know met the devil at the crossroads demonization of, of black music that way which now still completely permeates rock and roll right mm-hmm. yeah uh after your presentation at uh the satanic state it got me thinking that there must be a lot of similarities uh in the caribbean mm-hmm. with the music that that you're more kind of in tune with and i was wondering if you could speak to that
0: I'll do my best. Um, I actually gave. It's funny when you um, asked me to to do this interview. It actually coincided with with another um, talk I gave just last week to another satanic organization that that's here. They're the capital area satanists, and um, we've worked with them before. Uh, maybe we started to do stuff together about two. Summers ago. Basically, we are, you know, in fellowship with one another. And um, although we don't, you know, always do things together, you know, every now and then one of us will reach out. And I wrote an article since the Lil Nas song came out. I wrote an article that talked a little bit about sort of just my take on that. And then um, it just happened to be that they called and said, Hey, would you like to talk a little bit more? About this subject, you know, we wanted to reach out to you guys, and so, um, so I gave a talk just last week on hell and kind of getting into some of the the things that you're talking about. They seemed to like it, and it went really well.
2: So, so how did that that demonization of local culture e- express itself uh, in in Caribbean music
0: and and art? So there is there's sort of a paradoxical relationship to West Indian people, generally speaking, and the devil. In the sense of uh, the Christianization of the culture uh, and what was essentially the experience that the Africans would go through, just as enslaved people, Christianity was sort of, you know, right alongside of that process, especially as the islands became more and more established. It seems to be when I do my research on the escalation of plantation slavery, that um, there was a bit of it. At first, depending on the islands that you're talking about, there's different levels of Christianization. So the Spanish and the Portuguese tended to have Catholicism as the sort of driving factor of religion. Um, And the British and, excuse me, Spanish, Portuguese, and French would be Catholic, and the British and the Dutch, and everybody else would essentially be Protestant. And so, depending on the island, you're talking about two different types of of evolution of of Christianization. And with that, two different sort of aspects of demonic sort of ideas, demonizing African culture. Almost everywhere I look, um, just in terms of my lifetime of memory of studying these things, as well as just more recently, almost everywhere I look, African culture is. Demonized. And that's um, very heavily reflected in music and drumming, specifically, and a lot of the uh, practices like voodoo and uh, voodoo and obiya and so forth that emanated in the islands after they got there, after the Africans got there. Their religious practices were demonized, particularly because, you know, they were seen as an uh, in inferior people, uh, a sort of barbaric primitive race, an inferior race, and therefore the religions that they practiced were looked upon as inferior. And um, the whole context of slavery is predicated on a particular combination of that idea, as well as the r- religious political idea of conquer and, and dividing and conquer. And so those two things together, everywhere you see Black people in the New World, Their religion is demonized. Um, But it just shapes, kind of shapes out different ways depending on the Catholic or the Protestant traditions. So there's that. With the Catholicism and what would become Santeria and all the other sort of iterations of Yoruba religion, there was a blending of religion. The Santeria, in fact, is a blending of that. And there were aspects of African culture that could survive that demonization because it was sort of masked in the syncretic religion of a little bit of, oh, the the Orisha are correlating to such and such a saint. You know, this is the virgin Mary, this is the such and such. And so there's a sense of um, that combination of, of idols, essentially, and aspects of the divine that survived the experience. Whereas in Protestant cultures, it was a little bit more strongly eradicated. For example, on St. Croix, where I'm from and the Danish West Indies, you had Lutherans, uh, you had a lot of Moravians, um, you had Lutherans and Anglicans. And those traditions didn't really make a whole lot of room for that kind of syncretic aspect. Now, people still had that, but it was sort of practiced Sort of in secret, um, you know, there was a sort of a compartmentalization for that. But generally, the, the mission of the missionaries was to convert and to essentially do so by branding African religion as devil worship so it just shapes out different ways. We do have some traditions in the Danish West Indies uh, Jumbi is sort of the one of the spirits as we talk about jumbi as sort of it's a part of the folklore and I was actually just reading something today that was talking about jumbi and I remember growing up with Jumbi Jumbi was very much an African sort of good and bad spirit. And it's, it can kind of have a lot of different meanings. It's sort of a catch-all in some ways, but it's definitely something that's African-derived. And it is certainly still regarded as like the spirit, the spooky kind of spirit. And there are all kinds of jumbies. There's all kind of folklore and stuff that kind of has sort of uh, been passed down from generations about Jumbi. And we do have Africanisms in the in the interview we did. You know, we I talked about you know Carnival and I talked about the Moko Jumbi and I talked about... Obviously, a lot of the, um, aspects of carnival culture that are very much African. So we do have a lot of Africanisms, but as far as demonization, it's a little bit different than, say, like in Haiti or in Jamaica. Also, St. Croix is a smaller island. And, um, although there's plenty of mountains and there's a lot of places for people to, to exist, it's a smaller island than, you know, Hispaniola and Jamaica. So uh, in terms of maroon communities, you don't find as many as you do in some of the bigger islands where people could live very isolated sort of cultural lives where they could preserve New culture.
1: New African migrations of slaves into the, um, into the territory by the 19th century, the Europeans were going further down the African coast. And many of the slavers which were caught in the high seas had um, slaves who were coming from what we now know as the Congo. these people um, came to Jamaica after 1830 as indentured laborers and one tradition has it that um, the, the kumina religious cult came in at that time and the, hence the recency and the durability of the deep Africanity if you like of that particular ritual. <laughs>
0: Just to answer your question, the demonization is pretty much uniform in some sense, but it's a little bit more, I guess, intact in terms of a defiance in practicing African religion anyway. Whereas like in St. Croix, I didn't grow up a lot around a lot of actual African uh, religious practice, like explicit African religious practice. People are either Christian or they're apathetic to religion, you know, uh, altogether, or they are, and I'm speaking really broadly, Rastafarian, right? Those are sort of the three dominant, more or less, you know, takes that you get if you just kind of just get a sense of what people are. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go to Anglican churches or Moravian churches, Lutheran churches. Those are the old old churches there. And of course, now, you know, modern times, you have people of all types of religion there. So, you know, it's more than that now. But in terms of colonial and post-colonial populations, you're generally talking about Christianity or later on Rastafarianism. There's not a lot of established sort of African religious practice there there are remnants of african folklore and so forth but not like it's not like if you go to haiti you can find places where people are having you know sessions and so forth right. of stuff we don't have that that i know of in saint quair saint thomas or saint john in in our modern time right but, but
1: it's
2: kind of it's kind of stuck around in stuff like you know uh african rhythms in the music and yes, stuff like that yes yeah
0: yeah and so in that sense it's not considered demonic because it's just enough for it to just be a, of a cultural importance. It's not enough to draw contrast in the way that if people were actually practicing, it, it, it's not enough to sort of actually rise to that level of like, okay, we need to call this demonic. But that's that's really specific to to the the landscape of the island. Jamaica is a different story. Um, there's, there's a lot more of Obia there. And there are some aspects of a syncretic tradition there, but there's a little bit more of a, of an actual sense of demonization. There's, there was a lot of missionary work that went into colonization of Jamaica and, like I said, Protestant missionaries. Later on, uh, there would be all kinds of Christians there, there's Seven day Adventists and so forth. And those traditions are very, very specifically oriented towards demonizing African traditions. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room there to have a syncretic kind of tradition. It's it's either Christian or it's not. And if it's not, it's demonic. So there may be people that practice African religions or some sort of derivation of that, but they are doing that in a way that's outside of the Christian mainstream. And therefore that's demonic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Sorry, it's a little long-winded. <laughs> no, that <laughs> I was, was really good. I, it's a half hour show and we're 20
2: minutes in already.
0: So. <laughs> is going through some transitions as we change affiliations behind the scenes. We're going to keep it coming, but for the moment, if you want to support the show, you can support us by following us on Twitter at WWH Podcasting, and or you can support me on social media at Rogier1 on Twitter and Instagram and Patreon. That's at Rogier1, R-O-G-I-E-R-S, and the number one. Whatever way you do, we'll be grateful.
1: This is Reggie, and you're listening to Where We're Heading.
2: In the whole Southeast area, what we all know, what we've heard through our own families, is that back when first contact happened. We had a very specific style of singing. the spirit of some of the old music before plantations and slavery and so forth and colonization. People are really shocked when they hear the traditional music of the South East. They're like, that's Indian music? I thought that was African music. the southeast itself informs the sound. We hear the birds here, we hear the water here, the rivers, the canoe songs, and that informs what comes out of our mouth. All of American music that came from the south was informed by our land and therefore
0: by us. When I hear stories about Wofoka creating the ghost dance, the dance that would make the Native Americans invulnerable to the bullets of the white man so that they could rise up from the reservations and kill off their oppressors. They were that desperate. Was that music the blues? It might not have sounded like a but baby. That was the blues. Um,
2: yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, where you'd like to... Take that from there. Like, well,
0: i i could I could go into some stuff that I talked about last week, if, sure. if that's okay. Because yeah. one of the things, yeah, one of the things last week that I mentioned was taking things to the mainland a little bit, where in the United States, like I was talking about in, in Jamaica, but but definitely more so in the United States, there was a very strict line between African uh, religious practice and Christianity, and and a demonization of African religion. For example, it's long been said that we were in the United States, we were uh, forbidden to have African drumming. And drumming is a a fundamental aspect of African ritual and religious practice. And the story is that the, the people in power recognize the power of the drums, not only in terms of the ritual aspect of it, but in terms of communication and in terms of rebellion. And having seen how African religion played a part in slave rebellions on uh, in St. Domain, in Jamaica, and in some cases, certainly in other islands, but most notably in, in what is now Haiti and Jamaica, having seen African religion Essentially, be a predicate for slave rebellion um, in the plantations and burning of crops and, you know, killing of masters and so forth. The people in power in the United States took note and they recognized that link and so they outlawed the drums very early on because they realized that that was a part of the mentality of the Africans who were staging these rebellions and killing people and destroying the crops and all the financial sort of profit margins. And so um, so the way music evolved in the United States was without the drums. And so in some ways, it's it's characteristically different than how religion and how people behaved in terms of um, the enslaved Africans in the other parts of the Caribbean and in and, and South America, they didn't have drums. And and so in addition to that, you had that demonization. So this, the drums are outlawed, the religion is condemned, you know, the rituals are squelched, and it's very clear that African practices are demonic. Now, there were stories about, you know, folks going into the woods and having secret sort of religious uh, rituals, but it doesn't seem to be a very long tradition of that. That seems to kind of convert into Christianity at some point. And so on some level, you start to see enslaved Africans practicing religion on their own, but it's Christianity. And so they're sneaking off to practice, but it's um, Christianity and or it's just to have a good time. Um, Christopher Cameron wrote some accounts of of some of the behaviors of, of people in plantations in the 1800s who were doing things on Sunday and they weren't going to church. So there's some people who are practicing Christianity. There's some people who are not practicing Christianity at all, but it's very clear that they're not practicing African religions. They're not doing what folks were doing in Haiti or in other places in Jamaica. They're not doing, they're not, you know, singing songs to Shango and stuff like that. They don't have the drums. Um, so there's a, uh implicit bias that African traditions um, and African identity is, by its very nature, demonic. And especially if it drives you to rebel against <laughs> the slave masters, it's definitely demonic. And as Christianity grows, that tension is ex- is is extended as more people Christianize and as the um, African-Americans establish Christian churches like the AME Church and so forth, you start to see a sense of association with secular and the sacred being the secular is demonized and the sacred is is not and so as the blues and I'm fast-forwarding but as the blues becomes more popular you have that tension between that being secular music and therefore demonized versus the spirituals and all of the traditions that come but from pulling
2: that. heavily from a lot of that gospel music
0: too it, exactly
2: A huge revelation that the banjo was an African instrument. The banjo, for the first hundred years of its existence, was not a white instrument at all, it was a plantation instrument. is very much what you would hear. I've heard people call it pre-blues. And so it really sounds very much like the roots of blues music.
0: This is, you know, really old uh, tension. And it's funny because, so last week I was talking about Thomas Dorsey. Thomas Dorsey is the father of modern gospel, essentially. He's he's regarded as the father of modern gospel music. He's the author of or the composer of uh, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which is the song that was Mahalia Jackson's signature song. It's the song that motivated Martin Luther King and, and inspired him and lifted him up in the civil rights era. And she would sing that song to him. Um, and it became you know an iconic song for her as well as so many other gospel singers to come. And it's considered canon. Like today, Precious Lord Take My Hand is canon. It is every bit as sacred as Wade in the Water or as Swing Low Sweet Chariot or any other Negro spiritual. And yet, Thomas Dorsey was a blues musician. He's in the blues hall of fame. Like the American Blues Hall of Fame, Thomas Dorsey is inducted into the Hall of Fame as a blues musician. And he comes from a tradition that is essentially demonized. But he was, you know, riding that tension and he played, you know, blues in his earlier career. And at some point, you know, he was doing blues and church on Sunday. And, you know, like I said, the song was popular and, you know, he ended up kind of riding into his career on the, the hills of gospel music and creating what we call the canon of gospel music, modern gospel music. And he comes from, a art form that's considered demonic you know it was this it was the, the musicians of juke joints and drinking and beer and ill repute mm-hmm. and he is um so there's always that tension and then you know, all of the rock and roll singers I mean little Richard and all these other people that come out of gospel music that would go on to become blues and rock and roll musicians they're all Blues and rock and roll musicians that were also church musicians, so there's a weird kind of tension there that sometimes it, it, it's it, it's a blending of both worlds in terms of what's considered demonic music, and it's always been there in terms of um, you know the African American traditions. You know, it's but it, I'm pointing it out that it's it's subjective, I guess, is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, it's it's a subjective thing to call something demonic music because we have these hardline examples of people who basically form the contours of gospel music. And they are demonic, essentially, if you (laughs) consider that to be demonic, but they give us the soundtrack for the sacred. So um, it's a a bit of a paradox there. Native people
2: presented a threat, was seen as dangerous, and people were arrested. Singers and dancers, incarcerated for performing this music, treaty guaranteed rations withheld from them. The federal government begins passing law after law in an effort to control native people in every way that you can imagine.
1: They went after every part of our culture. So of course they're gonna go after the music because it's an integral aspect of our culture. Because back in that time, in those times, everybody had a morning song to greet the day. They were songs of ancestor. they were songs of the old way.
0: Also, a lot of gospel music is really, really influenced by Native American music of the Southeast Indians. Uh, Historians, musical historians can draw real connections to the drum patterns and to A lot of the four, four, you know, uh, you know, quarter note sort of rhythms, you know, and so forth to what became gospel music. A lot of the vocal sort of uh, melismas and things like that are essentially what you could hear in the Native American powwows and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that all of those things are in what is gospel music. And at the same time, it's considered to be music that has elements of the demonic that has converted into the sacred. Well, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I was just getting started, <laughs> but no, it's really interesting. There's um uh, on that last point with the Native American roots of gospel music and and rock and roll. Um, if you're on PBS, I believe it's Independent Lens. There's a documentary that came out recently that talks about that. And um, if I find it, I have some footage of it. So um, I guess all that to say. Black music has always been demonized before rock and roll. It's been politicized. It's been politicized for the furtherance of control and the dominance of of Black people in terms of their position in the class and social hierarchy and in, in a, a way of control for maximizing economic profit for the colonial settlers who were here, whether we're talking about in the States or in or other places in the islands, but especially in the States, it's, it's always been politicized and demonized. And so um, there's a lot to look into on that subject.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you if they wanna
0: find out more? sure so um if you want to find me um, i'm an artist i'm a singer i'm a songwriter and also an activist and and so my website is fibbymusic.net that's f-i-b-b-y-m-u-s-i-c.net that's where you can find all my work and all the various links to my youtube's um, shows and past records and so forth Um, and also what i'm doing now great cool that was fun (laughs) thank you so much for inviting me i appreciate it
1: I'm in Salvador, de Bahia, and I just made my offering, and I'm gonna show you a few of the sites.
0: I'm so grateful to
2: be here. So very grateful to be here. I give thanks to Mama Yemenya, Mamo Papo Papa the four, Orisha that I'm connected to. It's beautiful
0: to be here. Well, that is it for this week and for the first episode of our new year and new season of the Where We're Headed podcast. As mentioned before, this season we are taking the show abroad, so to speak. And we're looking at all the varieties and dynamics of religion, culture, history, and descent taking place, not just here in the United States, but in Africa, South America, Latin America, and the Caribbean. So stay tuned as we go abroad. See you next time, and happy Black History Month.